Matthew chapter number 26. You ever been overconfident about something? You ever thought you were good at something and you had it down and then you just dropped the ball? You absolutely failed at what you said you knew you were going to do? You ever tell somebody or promise somebody that you're going to do something and for some reason you forgot to do it or you just completely messed up what it is that you wanted to get done? We've all been there, right? From when we were little children to grown adults. We have failed in the past, we still fail in the present, and let me, uh, let me assure you of something, you will still fail in the future. Shocker. We are made of the same stuff. We have the same proclivities that all men do. And ultimately this morning as we look at what Peter goes through in his confident denial of Christ, may it be a learning lesson to all of us. We're going to be looking at three specific things here in this text, the glaring pride in Matthew 26, 31 through 35, and 47 through 52. Number two, the lack of discipline, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. And number three, the devastating denial in Matthew 26, 69 through 75. So let's start with the glaring pride in Matthew 26, 31 through 35, and 47 through 52. Here's what it says. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So said all the disciples. Drop down to verse 47. And while he was speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, that would be Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You see, what we find here is Jesus is coming to an event that really is the climax of his ministry. This is the moment that he came to this earth for his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the moment that he had been destined for by the Father. Jesus is coming to the moment that he's to be betrayed by one of his own, his closest disciples, somebody that he actually invested in for three years. But Jesus actually isn't the only one who will turn from him. In fact, Jesus experiences rejection from all his disciples. It's important to understand that when Jesus actually quotes here he quotes from the book of Zechariah and shares with his disciples that he is to be killed as that shepherd. And in the process, his sheep would scatter. Ultimately, it's also future fulfillment in Israel. And yet, he will still return to Galilee to meet with them again after his resurrection. The approach here that Peter takes is one of glaring pride. It's not so obvious to many of us when pride creeps up. It's usually more obvious towards others. Most of us, when glaring pride creeps up, we don't see it. We don't sense it. 
we think we're actually being humble when there's really pride that's going on. In fact, one of, one of the things here that we see with Peter is he's overconfident. I don't know if you noticed this. Peter's statement actually goes against what Jesus says here. He says, maybe everyone else will. I won't. That won't be me, not me. Ask yourself this question in the details of this text. Has this ever been you? Have you ever said these kind of words? Maybe everyone else will, not me. Have you ever said anything like that? Maybe everyone else will mess up in their career choice, not me. I know that if I go to this college and I get this degree, I'll get paid this amount and I'll do better than my friends that didn't go to college. How many of us have made statements similar to this? Did you actually, by the way, calculate the cost of college? You see, a lot of people, they calculate the end results, but they don't calculate what it costs before you get to that end result. The many years of debt that you're going to have to pay off. So did we get the numbers wrong sometimes? Sure we have. Did it not turn out the way we expected? Oh, absolutely not. Many of us know that a lot of the things that we anticipated to happen in life don't exactly work out the way we want. Maybe everyone else will be stingy, not me. Well, really, how much would you say you actually give? If you were to be honest, how, how much have you given this past year with everything going on? Or have you kind of kept a little more to yourself? Did you create excuses for why you could not give because of this pandemic? You see, a lot of us say everybody else is like this, not me, but we end up doing what everybody else does. What about everyone else is terrible at relationships, not me? Would you say that you have that excellent marriage that glorifies God and exemplifies Christ and his church? And what's your definition of a good relationship? Is it God's definition or the one that you've made up? Maybe it's something that's very personal to you. Someone that makes me happy means that I have a good relationship with them. Do you have that unconditional love that God shows us that is sacrificial? Or if you were to be honest, there's a lot of selfishness that comes up in your relationship with others. And you want them to see ultimately that you're better than they are. How many times do we do that, right? We, we, we have this, this sense that Peter does, well, Lord, everybody else may do this, but it's not going to be me. Everyone else will betray you and deny you. It won't be me. Maybe everyone else is terrible at raising kids. Not me. How many of us as young parents have ever made that statement, at least maybe not publicly, but at home? You know, we, we've got this, my parents didn't do it the right way. I'll show them how it's done. Kids these days don't have any respect for authority. Well, have you shown your children how to respect authority? Parents, have we done that? What's your view towards authority? Their obedience and your obedience is actually tested where you disagree, not where you agree. Maybe your children aren't fully grown, and you and I need to keep our pride to ourselves. It's easy to look at people that have already raised kids and said, hey, I'm not going to have my kids turn up like that. It's a lot different when you're in the process and you understand, hey, you know what? I'm not really doing everything the way I plan to do this. If your definition of good parenting comes straight from psychology, then you need to rework that definition. You see, sadly, a lot of Christians have a psychological approach to parenting, not a biblical approach to parenting. And sadly, what happens is they deny Christ by the way that they parent their children because Jesus isn't valued in their home. The professor is more valued, or this book is more valued than the Bible. Maybe everyone else will fall in this area, and this is where you can really name any sin. You know, gluttony, or anger, drunkenness, adultery. Maybe everyone else will fall in this area, but not me. That just won't be me. You and I need to get off our high horse. 
Maybe, maybe every one of us needs to understand that here in this text, guess how many people Jesus called? Twelve. Guess how many rejected him during this time? Twelve. You want to tell me that it's, it's, it's a coincidence that we are all made of the same thing? No. God knew that we needed him. Jesus knew that his disciples needed him. They needed fellowship with him. And sadly, in his darkest moment on this earth, his friends left him. They left him hanging. And you and I, we leave people hanging all the time, don't we? We tell people we're going to do something, and then we don't deliver. In fact, one of the things that's, that's sad for us is maybe we don't care to be faithful to God as much as we say we do. In fact, a lot of us will use statements like, well, I've been faithfully walking to God, with God for 20 years. They're not really walking that faithfully. Look at them. Now, are you, are you being honest with that when you make those statements? Could you really say, hey, in the past 20 years of my life, if I've been a disciple of Jesus, I've been walking faithfully? Or have you seen those areas where you really dropped the ball and you really fell? God had to bring you back to him. You see, we're lying about our faithfulness to God many times. God tends to humble his children that walk with him over a long period of time. In fact, many young Christians, I know I'm one of these, we tended to think the older generation didn't get it right when it comes to the faith, right? They were too legalistic. They cared too much about dress code. They had horrible taste in music, right? Some of us think that. I can't, can't wait for our kids to see what kind of Christian music we've listened to and make fun of us too later. That'd be great. Um, as we grow in our relationship with God, we start to realize that things that matter are not what we think they are. We start understanding more of the reasons why our parents found church attendance to be important. Maybe they weren't just being legalistic. Maybe they understood this was a key point of the Christian faith. Maybe, we didn't know it back then, maybe that Bible reading wasn't just legalism. Maybe it was to keep us in check with God. Maybe that prayer before we went to bed was really to connect with God, not just a tradition. See, the problem is, for us, we fall into the trap that we think others will. And we give ourselves a pass. And we think, you know what? I can't get to it today. How many of us have said this? I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I can't do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. And what ends up happening is tomorrow keeps getting repeated. Because it's the same as yesterday. And what's sad for us is we see Jesus telling Peter here, look, Peter, I hate to break it to you, but you're not an exception to the rule. In fact, you will outright deny me three times before the rooster crows. Jesus specifically tells them how it's going to go down. But Peter actually doesn't stop here, right? He goes further and says, I'll be faithful to the point of death. And then the others join Peter in the same statement in asserting their faithfulness to Christ. Even when Jesus tells him, here's how it's going to happen... By the way, most of the predictions that Jesus makes are surrounding his death, burial, and resurrection. You see that constantly throughout the Gospels, as a side note. Peter says, no, that's not going to happen to me. It might happen to everybody else. That, that's not going to happen to me in this overconfident, glaring pride. We don't know if he was trying to be boastful, but obviously he doesn't take Jesus' words seriously because he counters it right away. We need to give Peter props here, though, because he actually does try to defend Jesus later on. In verse 51, he actually tries to take a whack at one of the servants coming after Jesus. And Jesus tells him to put away 
the sword because it's not proper at that time. It's not to say that war is never right. In fact, Jesus mentions the angels that are available at his disposal, which, by the way, will be used at the end. Jesus will return one day to conquer. That was just not this time. Peter was actually getting ahead of the program here. He's jumping ahead of his master. So my question to you is this. How seriously do you take Christ's words when it comes to walking faithfully with him? How seriously do you take Christ's words when it comes to walking faithfully with him? Truth be told, you and I have the same problem that Peter actually does here. And it's a lack of discipline. Second point we're looking at, the the lack of discipline. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What Jesus does here is he goes to Gethsemane, which is actually an olive orchard, if you will. And as he arrives, he asks his disciples to stay a while while he takes three of them further in another location. He takes Peter, James, and John to another place in the, in the garden or orchard and tells them to stay awake with him and be on guard as he's under tremendous pressure and anguish. He actually tells them that here, that I'm under extreme pressure. He's sorrowful. And he's asking them to support him. Peter had just confidently stated that he wouldn't abandon Christ, yet what we see here is a lack of discipline on his part. In fact, Jesus is going through excruciating grief over what's about to take place in this crucifixion. What Jesus knew was the importance, ultimately, of coming to his Father for strength, something the others, along with Peter, did not find all that important. In fact, Jesus keeps finding his disciples lacking discipline in staying awake, And being on guard, he actually has to wake them up. He goes three times back to them. Jesus understood something that the disciples did, and I think this is important for us as well. Pay attention to this. The first thing that he noticed is the need for support from others. In verse 38 and 41, the first part, he said, Stay here and watch with me. Watch and pray. Jesus understood the need for support from others. He also understood the importance of prayer to his heavenly Father. In verse 39, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He also understood the weakness of the flesh. Verses 41, the second portion, it says the flesh is weak. 
And also, Jesus knew the need to face reality. Verses 45 through 46, the last part of 45. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus wanted his closest disciples to be there for him. He wanted them to be there for him in the hardest moment of his life, right before the crucifixion. He wanted their presence. He wanted his heavenly Father's support in what was going to happen here, and in what he was going to do, and cried out to him in prayer. When his father, friends were not there, the Father sends an angel to comfort him, to strengthen him. Jesus knew that the flesh is weak. That is why spiritual discipline was required to face what was surely at hand. Jesus also knew that no matter what reality had to be faced, it had to be faced head on. There was no getting around it. As a side note, I don't know if you knew this or not, why were the disciples going back to sleep? Didn't they know what was ahead? Well, Luke actually gives us a little insight on this. We find that Jesus found the disciples sleeping from sorrow. Sleeping from sorrow. They were too broken about what was about to take place that they didn't want to face it alert in prayer as Jesus did. I don't know how many of us have, have gone to bed because we didn't want to deal with what we had to deal with. We've, we've gone to sleep because we just didn't want to face what we knew was going on. What's very hard for us to understand is the reason we fail so miserably sometimes because we can't do the prescriptive will of God because we don't take seriously all the warnings that it lays out for us. In fact, Scripture tells us that we need support from others. That's the whole point of the church context. It tells us that prayer is important. It tells us that the weakness of the flesh is real and you and I need to deal with that. It also tells us that we need to face reality. We can't make up reality. It is what it is and we have to deal with it and we have to face it head on. We think we'll do better than others without the help Prayer, the Spirit's work, and even we, we also do this thing called redefining our reality. Whatever the real issue is, we don't really think it's there, we're going to assume something else. Whatever that sin is that we're struggling with, it's really not that bad. It's not affecting me that much. We always change the facts, if you will, in our minds. We think we'll do better than others without the things that Jesus found necessary. As soon as we fall into this way of thinking, we come to the same result that Peter actually does here, the devastating denial. He came to a devastating denial here. The third point we're looking at, the devastating denial, Matthew 26, 69 through 75. It says this, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with the Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. You see, when we're filled with pride and lack discipline, we should not be surprised that we, in practice, deny the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We should not be surprised by that. And just as Peter has here a devastating denial of Jesus, that's exactly what will happen to each and every one of us. I'm not going to read into the text except to say that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance before being confronted. In fact, Peter followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. He actually wanted to see what was going on. And you see it in another text, I'll show you in a moment here, that somebody, one of the other disciples of Jesus let him in with, with better access because of what they had access to themselves. Peter saw the false witnesses being brought up against Jesus, the blasphemy charges, the spitting, the beating, which he knew would be the death sentence of his Lord and Master Jesus. If they could falsely accuse Jesus of these crimes, what do you think they could do with him? Being one of his closest friends. See, as Peter watches this unfold before his eyes, he's approached three different times about his close connection to Jesus Christ. And Peter strongly denies that he has a relationship with Jesus. One, one time that he's confronted is with a servant girl that kept the door with a courtyard. In fact, you see that in John 18, 15 through 17. Another disciple is actually trying to get him closer access to the proceedings. The same servant girl also tells others who then start questioning him. We see that in Mark 14, 69 through 70. And also the third time he's approached by, this is the, a known fact that I didn't really pay attention to before, he's approached by one of the relatives of the servant whose ear he cut off. So you think they might know something about Peter? That's that guy. Yep. He was the one that tried to attack whoever it is that the relative is. So what's interesting is that Peter had already been known in his community. And even these folks that had access to the proceedings that the priests were, were, were performing at this time, and that the trial they put Jesus under, Peter is ultimately frustrated because now he's caught. Now he's under pressure. He just wanted to see what was going to happen to Jesus. He didn't want to be bothered himself. He wanted to see what was going on with Jesus, and he followed at a distance. But then it hit home. People were going to ask him if he knew him. And just as Peter is asked that question, we are asked that question. And many times we respond with a resounding yes. But ultimately our lives scream no. Why is that? Because we don't have that discipline that Jesus had told the disciples was required. That spiritual discipline is lacking in many of our lives. In fact, what's interesting is each time Peter denies knowing Jesus and being one of his followers, he gets to the point at the end where he invokes God's judgment on himself if he's lying. Very strong. Very strong. Just as Peter denies his association with his master, the rooster crows. Just as he does that, the rooster crows. In Luke, we find another interesting detail. By the way, all four Gospels mention Peter's denial, so I think it's very important that we pay attention to this text. God wanted us to pay attention. We find in Luke that Jesus actually turned and looked at Peter, and this absolutely crushed him. the point of him breaking down in tears. I want you to picture for a moment with me people that you've invested a long time in, you've spent a long time with, and you've been literally with them each and every day, 
and the moment of your trial, you're innocent. You didn't do anything wrong. They deny knowing you because they don't want the same fate as you. You see, Jesus ultimately loved his disciples. He even says, greater love has no man than this, than a man what? Lay down his life for his friends. What is Peter doing here? He swears that he doesn't know him. Could you imagine the kind of pain Peter experienced when he looked and saw Jesus turn and look at him? Could you imagine seeing Christ and knowing that you just denied him and he knew It's deeper than anything else you and I have experienced. R.C. Sproul says it this way. The early church fathers said that Peter, for the rest of his life, could not hear a cock crow without his tears welling in his eyes. Jesus had implanted the link of that illustration, and it was that which reminded Peter of the thing that he needed to remember, and that was the words of Jesus Christ. So you might be wondering, man, what a, what a tragic finish here seems like such a devastating end here. What a wasted investment. Why did you invest your time, Lord, into Peter? He just just denied you at the lowest point as you're about to be carried away for something you've never committed, a crime. This was not the end. There's still hope. And you and I can find that hope where Peter found that hope. I don't know if you ever paid attention to this, but Peter, ultimately, when he hears the news of the resurrected Christ, he runs to the tomb. He runs. He runs to the tomb. He needed to realize the things that his master had said. And you know what God did in this process? He humbled him. He broke that pride that Peter had that said, you know what? Everybody else will will deny you. Everybody else will reject you, Lord. It won't be me. Everyone else will fail you. I'll be there for you to the point of death. The things his master knew was that support from others is important. Prayer is important. Flesh is weak. You need to face reality. Peter ran to the tomb as soon as he found out. He had to see for himself. Maybe there was still hope for him. There was. Jesus completely restores Peter after the resurrection, asks him the piercing question, Simon Peter, do you love me? He asks us the same question, knowing our pride, our weaknesses, our outright denial of him by the way we live our lives. So in conclusion, I have a simple question to ask. The same question that Jesus asked Peter. Do you love Jesus? Do you love me? Do you and I love Jesus? Is he really everything to us? Do his words matter more than the personal aspirations we may have? Would you own your own personal pride and own the ways that you've confidently denied him? You see, many of us, we've, we've been confident about what we think we believe about ourselves. But we know we're lying many times. We've been confident about a lot of areas in our lives that we think, hey, you know what? Everybody else will fail in this area. It won't be me. Let me assure you, brother and sister, you and I have the same proclivities as Peter. We have the same possibility of an outcome. 
And the thing that needs to happen in our lives is we need to make Christ the priority. And how do we make him a priority? Well, we value certain things. We value the fellowship of others. We value his word. We value prayer. We, we value the things that made Jesus strong during his moment of greatest trial and need. The need to be connected to the Father. To face reality head on. Folks, we can't, we can't bypass all the things that come our way. We have to face them head on. But you know what? You need to have spiritual discipline to be able to face them head on. If you and I don't have it, we can't face it. At least not without denying Christ. Some of us have been living in denial. We deny Jesus by how little of our priorities take time for Him. We don't make Him a priority in our homes, our personal lives, and our church. You'll never stand boldly for Christ in the future unless you humble yourself and follow Him today. You see, parents, you need to prepare your children today, not wait to prepare your children. We shouldn't worry ultimately about five years from now. We need to worry and be concerned with today. Jesus made it a point to pray. The disciples didn't. So here's here's an encouragement to you and me. We don't look to other people as the example. We look to Jesus as the example. He exemplified this. Jesus exemplified to Peter what he should have been doing. Peter went on to be bold for Christ. In fact, he did get to the point where he died on a cross himself. Jesus restores him, and Peter actually, later on, is bold with the gospel. This was a painful lesson that needed to be learned, but Jesus restored him. He can restore you 